Green Left Weekly Radio. There is one newspaper that is independent of powerful interests, and that's Green Left Weekly. It's the people's voice, committed to human and civil rights, environmental sustainability, democracy and equality. It presents ideas mainstream media won't. It's the leading source of local, national and international news analysis and discussion and debate to strengthen the anti-capitalist movement. It exposes the lies and distortions of the power brokers and helps us to better understand the world around us. Welcome to Green Left Weekly listeners. Good morning. And this is um, Lalita and Jacob um, at the studio. And a very good morning to everyone. Yeah, good We've morning got to everyone. Jacob, yes. And um, we have a pretty packed program today. So we're going to be having um, Alan Shelford. Um, who Sheffield. I'm Sheffield, um, who is... He's a scientist. Well, he's he's uh, working with his father, who's a professor in in genetics, and we're going to talk about the proposal two weeks ago where uh, codeine was withdrawn from the um, shelves uh, for people who may want it. Um, and there's a substantial amount of information there, which is really interesting. Hmm. Uh, but anyway, uh, that's that's one. And the other one is with Umesh uh, Pirin Banayakam who is a Sri Lankan um, representative from the Tamil Refugees Collective. And he's going to talk about the refugee situation and in particular relation to a Tamil man who's being threatened with deportation or in fact he's about to be deported. Quite an urgent issue. Um, And there's elections in Sri Lanka as well. So we shall see what... Um, we can chat about when it comes around those those two issues. And the last interview um, at 8.10 is with, is with Alex Bethel, who's the nominee of the Greens for the um, Batman by-election. So it's a fairly heavy sort of um, morning mm. this morning. So, news, um, Jacob. Okay, I think, you know, maybe might be interesting, um, might be worthwhile to, you know, give a bit of commentary on... Um, this whole thing that's kind of dominating the media newsways, which is this basically this whole very silly story about Barnaby Joyce. And in fact, I don't think anyone cares about what he does with his personal life, except the media does seem to care. And But I think the main thing that should be highlighted is he is basically a hypocrite. Um, as a gov- as you know, a politician, he has spent his entire... You know, he has always been on the wrong side when it comes to the regulation of people's personal behaviours, especially his opposition um, to marriage equality. And also, I think it's also um, quite, you know, reactionary of the Malcolm Turnbull to basically respond with this sort of moral panic where they're basically restricting, you know, relationships between staffers and parliamentarians. I mean, who cares? If it's consensual, then there's absolutely no issue there. So that's that's a problem. Yeah, and yeah, I think it's um yeah because I was just in the Q and A audience um yesterday, yes, and yes. um this kind of popped up as a conversation, and there was some weird kind of p- political argument being made as actually relating this to the Me Too campaign, and which it, in fact it actually has nothing to do with the Me Too campaign. Um, although what I think is questionable is. The kind of sexist kind of coverage of the whole Barnaby Joyce affair, especially that you know horrible cover 
um, front cover of the Daily Telegraph, um, which is sort of, you know, has a to describe it to probably the listeners who haven't seen the front cover. It's basically a, a sort of very uncomfortable picture of Barnaby Joyce, kind of basically ogling or looking at um, his, you know, mistress in a in a, in a far, rather kind of inappropriate way. And sort of the framing of that is, I think, you know, obviously very problematic and kind of example of, you know, the kind of inherent sexism in society. Um, but in terms of um, other news stories, um, I guess one... One of the major kind of issues in uh, in Green Left Weekly that is covered this week is on the front cover we have a kind of article about public transport and you know, it's basically the argument of um, why public transport should be put back into public hands and the article goes into um, on basically argues on how, you know, as Jim McElroy here writes that, you know, the transport system in Australia is in crisis. Um, the push by governments and the private roads lobby to build more tollways and sell off our public transport to big corporations is worsening services, raising costs and creating a transport e-pass for the public. And, of course, um, um, then he talks about, you know, one of the centres of this is in Sydney um, because by, um, right now... The government is intent on pushing forward this road toll project that nobody wants, which is known as West Connects. Um, And, you know, it's a open-ended engineering adventure, sucking limited public and private funds out of public transport, freight rail, regional and rural infrastructure, and the social budget, including health and education. Critical, profitable public enterprises are being sold off to, you know, fund off, fund... a, a big massive road and I think that's basically kind of telling of you know where public transport is at um, but in this article you know Jim McElroy talks about the kind of alternatives that we should be seeing and you know one of the alternatives is that we should see a push towards a public um, publicly owned transport much like how Jeremy Corbyn in the UK is pushing uh, and and because because, you know, the privatisation of the system leads into these problems where you have, you know, the increasing price of fares um, and then you have ticket expectors in, implemented to basically build up revenue. Um, and then, you know, it's... Um, and then you have the degradation of, of services um, yeah. and and so on. And, of course, um, I think it's... It's um, the only ideal, I think, solution is that we should be pushing towards a public ownership of public transport and we also should be challenging all these sort of expensive and very problematic road projects. I know. I mean, when you're talking there, it just reminds me of that young boy who was assaulted by the, what they call them, PSAs, um, the security guards that roam public transport. And it just it seems, you know, it reminds me of how when people wear a uniform and they're given a weapon, they have the power to do anything. Even their persona, the way they present themselves is is very, it reminds you of bullies. You know, it's it's a, a, a thuggery, really, when you look at it. But, um, yeah, um, the public transport issue is a big issue. And um, for me, it's important because I, I don't like driving around, but... It takes me more than an hour to get home from Fitzroy to Northcote because of the way that public transport runs. And if I, if I drive, I get home in 15 minutes. 
So that that's that for me is demonstrative of how the public transport uh, system can uh, improve. There's a big gap in mm. what people's expectations and what is possible as opposed to what's actually happening at the moment. Yeah, and one um, thing I'd like to point out is you know we're, since we're um, our show is being recorded in Free CR and you know in Fitzroy. One of the issues with um, public transport in the kind of inner north area, I mean, it's great. I mean, the public transport is quite good in the inner north, but it's also held back by these problems that you that they shouldn't have. Um, in fact, one of those problems is on the Route 86, the shrams are not frequent enough. In oh. fact, when I was living in Northcote for a bit, um, the Route 86 was always packed and completely overcrowded at peak times. Actually, it was packed even on when you took the SRAM at like 8.50 or 8.40 or 9 p.m. Um, and also the trains on, say, the South Morang line are not frequent enough. In fact, they operate almost every 30 minutes, so they're probably a bit more frequent. If it's, you- it's, it's, sorry, sorry, Jacob, but it's a general problem of... Um, the high-density policy, where they've uh, built uh, stacks of high-rises along that route, and there's no, not much change in the timetables of the trams, of how do you transport you know, that number of increased population you know, into the city and back, mm. or anywhere else for that matter. Anyway, yeah. just, And I just was, um, was recently spent some time in the south, and the Frankston line has 10-minute trains yeah, every 10 minutes. Even on Sydney roads, every four minutes they've got trains. Mm. Anyway, uh, let's move on to um, another topic. The um, Victorian Socialists. Um, we should talk about that a little bit. There's a, a ticket of three socialists who are standing in the election, state elections that are coming up in November. Um, Stephen Jolly, who has been the uh, councillor in Yarra for the last, what, four terms. Uh, and Sue Sir Bolton, people uh, know her very well, a councillor at Moreland, and uh, another person from um, another social organisation, um, Colin Bolger. Mm. All three of them are standing as a ticket in the upper house in the northern corridor of um, uh, the Victorian elections, and that'll be coming up later. We'll try and interview uh, Stephen Jolly when he's available. Uh, but if you want to... Um, know more about it, you, you you certainly can find it on Facebook. Yeah. So it's important because it's the first time, I think, for a long time, there's been a unity ticket among socialists because normally you hear, you know, why do this, these people have so many groups and they're all little groups that fit in a telephone box mm. type um, conversations you hear very often. So this is the opportunity, I guess, for people yeah. to relate to something that is um, positive and um, hopefully... Uh, something will come out of it. Yeah, to tell you just a bit because I wrote um, I wrote the article that's in the Green Left Weekly here. <laughs> um, one of the one of the things um, that's quite significant about this ticket is um, you know that is a, they're running on a genuine kind of socialist kind of platform. You know, basic kind of common sense. What Stephen Jolly would describe as common sense um, solutions, like to to public transport, um, to housing, um, therefore building a massive expansion of public housing, um, therefore, you know, a massive um, inf- um, overhaul of our public transport system, including a commitment to advocating for 10-minute trams on the inner north train lines. Um, and then there's also um, what would be significant is if, you know, one of them would get elected, and it's likely would be Jolly, because I think at this point Jolly is going to be the number one candidate, Um 
that he would, if he were elected to the parliament, he would be the first open socialist um, to be elected to um, the state parliament since 1944, which was um, Fred Patterson from the Communist Party of Australia, who was elected to Queensland state parliament in 1944. And it would actually, I think, might be worth um, potentially doing some kind of interview or with someone who knows a bit about the subject to give a bit of history of um, Fred Patterson, because I think it is quite a interesting history, um, especially since he was um, gerrymandered out of the electorate, so he wasn't able to win um, the second election, and then he was also then killed by a police officer in a protest. So that was, um, I think it's an interesting story, and I think, you know, there's there's potential exciting possibilities in terms of building um, the left in, um, in Victoria with this ticket. Um, now, I guess I'll just do give, um, we're getting ready to do our first interview, um, but I think it would probably be useful to talk about, give a short, um, to talk about this short article about a, a recent Stop Adani protest um, that happened in Canberra. Um, Margaret Gleeson here writes here that Stop Adani activists from around Australia gathered in Canberra on February the 5th and the aim was to, um, of this protest was to call on Labor and Coalition MPs to prioritise cancelling the Adani mine project in the in while the session while Parliament was going on, and the protest involved about a hundred protesters set up at the front and rear entrances of Parliament House from seven a.m. to welcome politicians arriving for the first day of Parliament. Um, and it's noted here that, you know, Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull and Deputy Prime Minister Barnaby Joyce made a point of not responding to the protesters, but a number of parliamentary staff and MPs hooked their horns in support. Green Senator Andrew Barlett joined the early morning protests and indicated support for the action. And then by 10am, about, about 500 protesters had gathered on the front lawns to make it clear that this is the year of stopping Adani. Um, there were a number of speakers addressing the crowd, and including um, including um, including Pacific Climate Warrior Free Fifty dot org Pacific Zane um, Sukuku and Councillor with the Climate Council of of Australia Will Stephan, and the cr- recurring theme. Um, was that while the movement had many successes last year, such as um, the Queensland government's veto of the Northern Australia Infrastructure Facility loan, um, downer pulling out of its deal to construct the Adani mine, banks and financial institutions around the world refusing to finance the project and frontline action against coal hindering coal trains' progress to the Abbotfoot to- um, Abbot Point Terminal, the Carmichael Mine in Queensland Basin, still had the support of both Labor and the Coalition. The, co- the, the, the focus is now to break this bipartisan support and build a growing on on the ground, growing opposition to the to the mine. And of course, Sam Register is um, quoted here from Get Up concluded: Any party which doesn't outright oppose Adani will suffer at the ballot box, and this includes the ALP. And of course. This is the year to change the politics of coal. This is the year to stop Adani. Okay. We have um, Alan Sheffield from a company called um, My DNA, uh, And he's going to talk about an issue that hasn't been discussed, I guess, on radio. It's a withdrawal of codeine um, over the counter. Um, and he has uh, interesting things to talk about about that particular topic. Pain relief is an important issue for a lot of people in the community. Good morning, Alan. 
Good morning. And welcome to 3CR. Thank you for offering your talk so early in the morning. Um, no, you're welcome. Now, we, we have some figures here. It says uh, 65% of Victorian uh, Victorians have bought codeine over the counter over the years. And um, the co- used codeine products in the last 12 months in Victoria amounts to 36%. And we know that um, there's a lot of people who use codeine as a painkiller. Um, yes. And there's a lot of people who suffer pain, obviously. Um, so you are saying, what, what, what is your contribution to this whole issue? Because the government has drawn it. We have to go to the GPs to get codeine for, to you know, address the pain. Yes, yes, yes. So, look, I mean, I guess it, it shows that there's a, I look, there's a, there's a big need, as you said. There's still a lot of people using it, uh, and it's going to be fairly inconvenient for a lot of people now that they need to go to the doctors who rely on codeine. And uh, it turns out that, you know, the reason that they're sort of rescheduling it is that uh, there's a lot of issues with both toxicity and overdosing and addiction when it comes to codeine. Mm. Um, but that, not everybody has that problem. That's only, right. You know, only some people. Mm. Um, and there's a lot of variability, you know. Right. Yeah, so, you know, some people have codeine and it's fine, and uh, other people uh, uh, can experience side effects. So that variability in response actually comes down to your genetics. That's and right. uh, how your body processes the medication. and we can now do a, a very simple mouth swab test that um, can help um, help people understand how their body processes these medications. And if codeine's okay for you, you can, you know, take a report to your doctor and uh, and make sure that you can still access it. Mm. That's an interesting way of um, um, tailoring medications to uh, any one person. The DNA medicine has been talked about a little bit. So y- y- your y- your um, work actually helps to see if codeine is the 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 chosen um, medication or painkiller for that particular person. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. So, as I said, not you know, two people taking codeine can have very different responses. So, me and you could take both take the same dose of that medication. You might be completely fine and think it's terrific, um, but I might find I get horrible side effects from the drug. Um, and what we can do is do a test and we understand uh, how the body, how fast you process the drug, or how slow you process the drug. And if you process it too quickly you can get side effects and if you process it too slowly the drug may not work at all and uh, there's a gene that actually converts codeine to morphine now if you're missing the gene you'll never get morphine which gives you pain relief Mm. Um, and so that's what we're testing for whether you're missing the gene now once we know that if morphine is not a good or sorry if codeine is not a good drug there are a whole host of alternatives that might be better suited um, but this genetic test also covers a whole range of drugs, uh, such as antidepressants, some of the blood, um, in cardiovascular type, blood thinner drugs, um, statins for cholesterol. So it can give your, you and your doctor a whole lot more information about how your body processes medication and just try and get you the right drug from the start. Hmm. That's interesting because it, 
you are you're talking we here we are just talking about codeine and there you mentioned the conversion of uh, codeine into morphine and hence the addictive component and uh, difficulties um, i guess faced by faced by the therapeutic goods ad- ad- administration hence the 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 uh, decision by the government um, from uh, a couple of weeks ago. So this DNA um, tailored medicine, is it a generalized one? Are you specifically involved in coding alone? No, no. So as I said, it's, uh, it's, it's more generalized. So we're looking at a group of genes that sit in your liver and uh, they help get rid of you know, toxins or poisons, which medicines are. And uh, so that's actually responsible for about 50% or almost half of commonly prescribed drugs. So mm. If you're, on, if you're having issues with side effects to medications or finding that certain medications don't work, um, this can, you know, this, this your genetics might be um, the key or, or give you some answers of why that might be. And um, by having that information, really what we're doing is really arming your doctor with more information to make a better decision on, you know, which drug and at which dose and what might be going on. Mm. One of the things that... Um I'm a nurse, so I've come across a lot of issues along these lines. I mean, I myself had to go on four different types of, or three different types of anti-cholesterol medications before I found the one that I didn't have yes. react to. Yes. I, I want the DNA um, tailored <laughs> medical practice yes. to come into being, you know? So being more aware of, of, of medicine and treatment and so on um, made me think about that. But the, one of the prohibitive, prohibitive factors about um, DNA testing is the cost. I know when we do um, testing for paternal um, DNA or maternal DNA, um, it's, it's in the hundreds of dollars. So what, what's the cost in, from where you're sitting? Yeah, so, I mean, one of the things that's uh, amazing is that the cost of this type of testing has really come down significantly over the last few years. So, you know, if you, you, it used to cost hundreds, if not thousands of dollars to do genetics, but the technology is getting cheaper and cheaper. So you, um, we've made it available through our laboratory and we can do the testing for under $100. Mm. Um, and so if it's, you know, you do the test once in your life, because uh, it's your genetics, you don't need to do a repeat testing, and then you have this information on your medical record for you know over over 200 medications, uh, and you can um, you know you can therefore be much more confident when uh, if you have to um, you know if you have to go on medication. So you know in the event of the statins you mentioned for yourself, well, we can predict whether people are going to get myopathy, which is that muscle pain hmm. uh, and, cr- and cramping, which is a reason a lot of people stop taking it. Yeah. Um, and uh, if you knew that from the start, you could have avoided that and gone straight onto, you know, one that w- you wouldn't have that problem with. Um, so, yes, yeah, so look, it's much more affordable. And, and, and we've also used, um, you know, you don't need to go to your doctor to get the test because it's a DNA test kit. And we've actually partnered with about 500 pharmacies who we've trained up in the area. Now, pharmacists are experts on drug metabolism and they've, they learnt at university that genetics plays a big role in you know, metabolism of drugs and so they've sort of been championing this area of science and so there's about 500 pharmacies who have uh, been become accredited through our company and work with your local doctor and, and the patient to conduct the test. And as you said, you don't have to go to the, the doctors, you can just go to the pharmacy and do it, yeah? 
Yeah. Yep. Um, the other thing I want to ask is, uh, sorry, um, this this DNA testing you're doing is it is it only for medications? Do you do do DNA testing for allergies, for example? Yes. Yes. Well, um, we don't do allergies yet. Um, unfortunately, usually that's if you mean things like peanut allergy and. And, uh, oh, even uh, even food intolerance. Sorry to interrupt you there, but food intolerance yeah. is something that not many people give credibility to. Like you know, I know I have uh, intolerance to certain things, and lots of people who are intolerant to food, but it doesn't quite fall in the category of um, life-threatening yeah. reactions. So the the medical profession generally it it's, it doesn't take it seriously enough, and it's a very young. Um, feel at the moment. I just wondered if DNA could be some testing could be something yeah. people benefit from. Yeah, well, certainly. I mean, we've uh, we're we're working on a whole range of tests that are coming out soon around food tolerances. So things like um, caffeine sensitivity. Mm. Um, you know, people have their, you can some people can have a cup of coffee before they go to bed, sleep fine, where other people have to stop drinking. You know, early right. in the afternoon. <laughs> yes, um, and that's the same actually the same process as these medications. So you can see some people get very jittery and other people are fine. So you want to know this information. So caffeine, there's alcohol sensitivity, uh, there's sensitivity to gluten, uh, yes. uh, lactose and milk. Uh, and some of these can be genetic can be genetic tests as well, um, which is just looking at how your, your body breakdowns, you know, lactose in the body mm. and whether you're more going to feel more bloated from these types of food. Mm. Um, so it, it is, look, it's an, it's an amazing and emerging field. And the reason that it's, it's emerging so quickly is because of the cost coming down and that the, the testing is becoming much cheaper in the laboratory. So the research in this area on a global scale is, is really exploding. And um, so we're doing food tolerances and that's coming soon. Um, and we also have, have sort of branched out into looking at a lot of interest in, in wellness and nutrition, um, you know, and, and, and living a healthier life. And so you can look at uh, uh, nutrition in terms of what foods uh, are best for you, um, in what sort of, if you want to lose weight genetically, you know, what the best diet might be. Uh, and even, you know, if you're looking at fitness goals, you know, what's your genetic potential for um, in exercise? So uh, we offer all of those tests um, and you can go to our website, www.mydna.life and people can learn all about it. That is wonderful. I think it's, this is like a dream field of medicine that um, was had to be found through the te- technological advances and it's a real pleasure to talk to you about this thing because I think a lot of people would want um, to know um, about it. But one of the, the setbacks, I guess, is uh, this DNA then being used by insurance companies and and uh, even the governments or, or whatever um, for for privacy and security purposes. What, what do you yeah. have to say in that area? Yeah, yeah. Look, privacy is very important, uh, I suppose, in the area of genetics, and certainly overseas, um, they've you know changed some of the legislation, which means that. Um, you know, you can't be discriminated against for your insurance based on your genetics. In Australia, we have there. There are no such rules in place yet. Um, how, however, the life insurance will only um, discriminate you really if it's to do with a disease-based test. You know, if you've got a risk of breast cancer in Australia, you actually need to disclose that, and that could count toward, against your life insurance. But in America, it's excluded. So I think Australia. Uh, legislation will catch up, um, but um, for our testing that we do, we don't do anything that's disease-based. 
Mm. Um, and therefore, it really doesn't affect your life insurance. You know, for example, if you have a medication test, it's actually just telling you how your body metabolizes or breaks down the medication. So that's actually a good thing for your insurance, not a bad thing. Um, <laughs> yes. So, you know, Get back so, to work quickly. Take this medication. Yeah, so, it, it, <laughs> so for the testing we do, uh, there's, you know, there's no impact to life or health insurance. It's like any other pathology test that you might have that they could access. Um, however, I think longer term, uh, you know, Australia needs to look at the, their policies around, you know, disease-based genetic testing because um, it's going to become a more important issue. Mm, it's a very interesting field as well, and it's it's so wide, and you don't know how far it'll go, but. It, if it's helpful to people, and that's the reason we are interviewing you, because normally we don't interview people from private companies who who yes. um, invest and, and advertise. This is not advert. This is information sharing, and I have to declare that I have no interest in your company or Jacob. Yes, for that yes. <laughs> um, yeah, well, look. Sorry, go on. Yeah, I was going to say, I mean, we started, my father and I started the company. My father is a professor uh, and a clinical geneticist who started the genetics department in the public system for in South Australia mm. uh, and also in uh, Victoria with the Murdoch Children's Research Institute. So he, he's dedicated the last, you know, 35, 40 years to working in the public system and, and doing research in this sort of area. And, and in fact, the only reason we started a private company was because it was fairly, fairly new 10 years ago and it's hard to get government funding for things that are so new. So mm. um, his view or vision was there are a whole lot of genetic tests that are very useful and can make a big difference to every, you know, people today, and he wanted to make it more accessible. It sounds good. And um, it, it's, um, it means that I don't have to go and buy four different medications to try for a huge cost before I find the one that I, that I know my body will accept, isn't it? <laughs> that's no, that's all right. Mm. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And you're seeing now all new medications that are coming out from the, uh, the FDA in America, about 35% of them are actually getting released on the... Um, on the provision that you have a genetic test before you access them. Okay, so that's interesting. You know, because it started, they've started to incorporate that in the way they do their clinical trials. So they know certain groups that won't work and they've excluded those groups. Um, so you're going to see more and more, um, you know, medications that are, that are going to need a genetics to, um, in order for you to get the right drug and the right dose. Okay, fantastic. So let's get the website one more time before I let you go so the people who yes. want to investigate further, they can pursue yes, it. So if you want more information, www.mydna.life. And, and, and the DNA is all uppercase, isn't it? Yeah, all lowercase, all uppercase. Okay. Yeah, mydna.life. And you can, you can find a pharmacy that might be close to you or you can discuss it with your doctor. Your doctor can also order it as well. Hmm. Um, and, um, yeah. Sounds fantastic. Thank you very much, Alan. Thanks very much for the discussion. I enjoyed it. Okay, bye. Okay, let's play a, um, a station ID before we move on. Um, if you lo- if you enjoyed that that interview and if you found that helpful, um, you won't get that on um, commercial radio or even ABC for that matter. Um, maybe you might sometime. I don't know, but uh, certainly um, you know these sort of discussions haven't been out in the open. Um, Please subscribe because it's an important part of keeping the radio station uh, live and working and happening and giving the community access to news that otherwise you wouldn't get on commercial radios. Um, And, of course, you know, you can come in and pay. You can go online and pay. So, please, if you... um, 
are on your way to work, uh, when you have a break, please think about uh, subscribing. Okay, Jacob, moving okay, on. Okay, so um, um, in the meantime, well, until we get to our second interview, I have a number of inter- um, articles um, that are happening um, from the international section of Green Left Weekly. Mm-hmm. And the first kind of um, thing I want to discuss is um, this article about um, Israel pushes back as BDS gains strength. Um, in terms of stuff that is, you know, happening in um, Palestine right now, um, many listeners probably know that seventeen-year-old uh, Palestinian Ahid Tamimi, I think, or Tamari, um, remains in prison awaiting trial for slapping a soldier who invaded um, her family's yard. Um, free. Um, 17-year-old Israeli woman are at the centre of a lawsuit over the decision of the New Zealand um, Sino Lord to, cats, um, to cancel a planned Tel Aviv um, concert. Um, um, Israeli uh, legal NGO Shurat Hadin is um, suing two New Zealand Palestinian um, solidarity activists on behalf of these three Israeli teens for their role in campaign for Lord to cancel the gig as part of the boy- global boycott and divestment and sanctions campaign. Um, probably listeners probably know that the BDS campaign in 2005 was launched in 2005 by dozens of Palestinian civil society groups in protests against Israel's apartheid policies towards Palestinians. And of course, it has gathered steam in recent times, you know, with a growing array of musicians and other cultural figures refusing to cross the BDS picket line. And in fact, I had the pleasure of seeing Roger Waters um, speak recently last Friday, um, who has played a real who's um, lead frontman of Pink Floyd, who has played a real leading role in um, leading that um, kind of campaign, um, leading the BDS campaign in terms of how it relates to musicians. Um, and has put, you know, played a role in putting a lot of pressure on musicians to cancel their shows in Israel in support of the BDS campaign. Um, this, 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 the decision of a superstar like the 21-year-old Lord is to respect the boycott is a clear sign of its growing power, you know, a fact that is unnerving the Israel and its supporters. Um, then in the article, he writes that, you know, one other um, positive development that has happened is the Central Council of the Palestinian Liberation Organization, the PLO, which is, for listeners' kind of background, is the kind of official representation of of um, the Palestinian people has actually now formally endorsed the campaign for the first time. And and on in a January 17th statement, the Palestinian BDS National Committee said, as the leadership of the BDS movement for Palestinian rights, we welcome the POO's decision to officially and unequivocally declare its support for the BDS movement, already supported across the breath of Palestinian society in Palestine and in exile. And so there's, um, and just to give a bit of more information on this whole um, case, it's particularly targeting two Israeli, um, um, two Palestinian solidarity activists, I think, um, two Palestinian solidarity activists, and it appears to be um, kind of a test case in relation to an anti-boycott law that was passed in 2011 by the Israeli parliament, and this law allows um, civil suits to be filed in Israeli courts against any person or organisation anywhere around the world that advocates for a boycott of Israel and its illegal sentiments, particularly if this advocacy can be proven to have resulted in an actual boycott. Um, the issue of whether boycott can be said to have resulted from a call to boycott seems to be um, the centre of the suit. Proving this will be difficult, 
um, and you know, but it amounts to attempt um, to punish the exercising of freedom of speech and conscience. Yeah, thanks for that, um, Jacob. It's it's amazing what's happening in Palestine. The genocide's been going on since you know forty eight, and uh, the the consistent support of the U.S. to this um, horrendous government. Um, it, it's a murderous government, really. Anyway, Netanyahu is on the ropes at the moment with uh, charges of corruption against him. So we'll see. He's been a survivor and a mm. hard nut to crack. Well, the the thing about that is um, he's not necessarily being charged no, um, because the, the Israeli authorities who are putting those charges him, you know, the honest thing is they actually do support the apartheid state. Of course they do. Um, There's a whole system set in there, isn't it? Mm. And so much of money flowing from the US to them. Okay, I want to move on to another subject, which I still find a little bit hard to fathom. You may know more about this, um, Jacob, but there's a comprehensive article in the latest Green Life Weekly about the Murray-Darling Basin Plan. I'm sure there'll be other programs on 3CR that will deal with it in in, uh, detail, those who are much more familiar with uh, this sort of stuff, and and especially the environment, hopefully BZD does that. But I just want to give a taste of um, what's happening there to people. Um, I think it was Four Corners that revealed the uh, the fact that water theft was happening, and then and grossly deficient compliance along the Darling River was happening too. Some six billion dollars has been spent on water recovery in the in the Murray Darling Basin. Of this, four billion was used to subsidise irrigation infrastructure. And the water recovery and the 2012 Basin Plan have been presented as a comprehensive solution to the environmental and economic problems in the Murray-Darling. But this has been a huge um, public expenditure, actually, um, <clears throat> excuse me, that has um, actually bought us what? So the Basin remains a in poor state. And in 2016, a report uh, gives a poor assessment on um, island water flows in the basin, and uh, it reports long-term down, tr- downward, downward trend in flows since 2011 and a widespread loss of ecosystem functions. Other evidence tells the same story. And to make, to make matters worse, <clears throat> excuse me, um, just two months ago, the Murray-Darling Basin Authority recommended to Parliament that buying back of environmental flows uh, be reduced by 22% uh, by July 1st next year. This is an average annual reduction that exceeds um, the volume of water in Sydney Harbour. Instead, 36 water supply projects are planned to deliver this water recovery goal, yet 25 of them fail to satisfy the basin plan. So it's it's a devastating um, uh, situation. I guess that's why the Greens voted against it in Parliament. I think it was yesterday. Um, it's time to call it like it is. Australia is paying the price of alleged water, alleged water theft, <laughs> questionable environmental infrastructure, water projects, and policies that subsidise private benefits at the expense of taxpayers and sustainability. So accountability requires transparency. Um, in reporting them and monitoring. So, so far, we have failed to redirect public money away from wasteful subsidies. And the, the, the framework is the same. 
privatization attracts money and support from government policies. Um, the small farmers and other recovery programs uh, and many more recovery program programs have done very poorly. So there's been a... <clears throat> Actually, um, there's been a um, statement that's been released. Uh, it's got dot points here. I'll just read out the headlines of the dot points for a step to change for this whole thing. One <clears throat> sorry, is to stop any further expenditures on subsidies or grants for irrigation infrastructure. And um, until there is an independent scientific and economic audit of what um, $4 billion delivered in volumes of water and environmental outcomes. And that's audit all water recovery, um, establish an independent expert scientific advisory body to monitor the basin's health, um, and publicly guide all government to ensure the full achievement of key objectives of the Water Act 2007. And a, a number of very significant, significant people have signed this statement. Um, this article, no, hang on, I'm trying to think of where the statement is for people to sign if they wanted to, but I'm sure you'll find it on the website. Uh, there's obviously no time to lose, and signatories to the statement include um, Director of the Center of Water Economics, Environment and Policy, Crawford School of Public Policy, um, the ANU, um, uh, Darla Hatton, McDonald is an associate professor, University of Tasmania. David Patton, associate professor, um, University of Adelaide. Graham Harris, professor fellow uh, uh, from Wollongong and so on and so on. So you should be able to find the statement in um, the Mardelling plan, I'm sure, if you go on the website. It doesn't say here where you find it, but I'm sure if you do a search, you'll get it. Um, hopefully I can get it to you next time. I'll put up the website if I find it. So if you're listening to the podcast... Or if you go to the podcast site on, on 3CR, you'll find the details. And I'll try and trace where you can find the statement in case you want to put your name to it. So that is an important issue because that that is that involves hundreds of lives, probably thousands of lives that live off the Murray-Darling Basin. It's a complicated issue, but it, the government has not been, or successive governments have not been, uh, have not been honest or open or transparent about what's actually happening to the Murray-Darling Basin, which is an important river system for so many states. Okay, I, I want to get that off my chat because it's been frustrating me for a long time that, you know, such large companies um, um, benefit from it, mm. and yet um, the, the small farmers have problems uh, meeting their needs. Yeah. All right, I think it will be um, worth playing a quick uh, station ID. Okay. Okay, welcome back, listeners. This is Tracia and Green Left Weekly, of course, and hope you're enjoying the show. Now, unfortunately, the person who's supposed to come to the studio for the interview is on his way, but he's running late. So we thought uh, we would swap um, this section for uh, announcements, and, and once he comes in, we'll conduct the interview. Sorry about this swapping of um, events. Okay. Ongoing um, campaign is the SO Workers um, campaign who are on strike. It's about 200 days, probably more than 200 days now. Uh, we know well about that. The U SO and UGL gas uh, maintenance workers have been fighting for um, all those days against massive pay cuts. For people who want to uh, get in touch with them, of course, they are on Facebook. Just go to SO Workers on Facebook and um you can also 
um, ring uh, donate to this this um, stoppage, and uh, I will put the details up on the um, website uh, on the. Um, 3CR website uh, in the podcast page if you want to have a look at the details too many numbers are read out the B is being a card number and so on okay the, the Australian paper workers they're still on strike I saw them the other day actually I should have stopped and chat to them in the uh, um, workers at Australian paper in um, Preston they've been out the gate for several weeks now and that's at 54 Raglan Street Preston and anytime between 6 a.m. and 11 p.m., they're out in the front campaigning for, again, another EVA dispute. And more and more of this is happening, as we know. On the 15th of February, Thursday, which is, that was yes yesterday, so I will leave that alone. Yeah, it was so yesterday. So today we have got the AMW annual general meeting. Uh, and people who are interested should turn up to Trades Hall at 5 p.m. No, it's 2 p.m. Oh, sorry, 2, 2 to 5 p.m., beg your pardon. Yes, and um, that's on the corner of Tr- Ligon and Victoria Street. Uh, and there's a forum on reclaiming the night. Economist Bill Mitchell... Reclaiming the state. Reclaiming the state. <laughs> you should read this, uh, Jacob. I think yeah. my brain... Yeah, yeah, I'll go. Um, I'll take over. <laughs> okay, so reclaiming the state is a forum hosted by the New International Bookshop. Um, it's going to be um, talk... Um, involve a presentation by The Economist, um, Bill Mitchell, um, who will give a presentation about his latest book, which, you know, apparently offers some kind of analysis about progressive economics in the 21st century. So that's at um, 7pm downstairs at the New International Bookshop in the Shrades Hall, which is a corner of Ligon and Victoria Streets in Carlton South. On Saturday... um, February um, the 17th, there's going to be a Lasnet AGM about building solidarity with our peoples. Um, they'll be happening at 2pm, the Lasnet space in the Shrades Hall, um, entry from the Ligon Street car park. And Lasnet is an association of Latin American countries. Um, and um, people who are interested in South American issues... Um, to attend that meeting. Yeah. You want to do the next one while I go and get Umesh? Yeah. So there will be a public meeting um, on on an Ascot Vale um, residence meeting around the public housing defence, um, organised by the Public Housing Defence Network. That's going to be happening. Um, that's a campaign that's um, that's focusing on opposing the state Labor government's um, private um, sell-offs of public housing. Um, and that's going to be at the community centre at the Wingate Avenue in Ascot Vale. Um, there'll be a rally, um, support um, support that stop the deportations of um, Tamils, um, and that will be uh, anti-deportation action involving um, Shantar Rubin, a former member of the Liberation Tigers of Tamil Elian, an organisation which fought for an independent Tamil state in the north and east of the island of Sri Lanka until military defeated in 2009, and has been issued with a notice um, saying he'll be deported on February the 22nd. It is unlikely that it is also likely that other Tamils will be deported at the same time. So this will happen at 2pm at the detention camp, which is at Camp Road in Broadmeadows, which you'll probably have to drive um, to, but you can get a bus there from, because I, I have been there before by public transport. Um, yes, and so it's organised by the Tamil Refugee Council, and we're going to hopefully have an interview talking about that in more detail soon. Um, there'll be a film screening um, discussion, an inconvenient sequel, Truth to Power, um, and it's um, hosted by Moreland Energy. Um, it's, it also features a number of speakers, including um, a federal MP for Wills, um, a Moreland councillor, um, Dale Martin, and Angela Butting from Climate Action Moreland, who's been quite a regular guest. So they'll be happening at the Coburg, t- Coburg Town Hall, 90 Bell Street in Coburg. 
And yeah, Thursday, February 22nd to the 9th of March, there's a series of films at the Nova Cinema in Lagon Street, the Transitions Film Festival. Uh, in the same day, we have a film screening at um, the Stop Adani Melbourne uh, campaign. It's called A Mighty Force. So if you want to support um, the campaign against Adani, uh, that's a movie to, to be attending. It's at 201 Napier Street, Fitzroy. And the 23rd, um, Ezekiel Ox is performing at the Evelyn Hotel, 351 Brunswick Street, Fitzroy. And the 27th, Tuesday, Western Saharan Association National Day Dinner at 6.30 p.m. Um, Ithacan Philanthropic Society, second floor, 329 Elizabeth Street. So that's the Western Saharan Association National Day Dinner it, at the Ithacan, Ithacan, Ithacan Philanthropic Society. Anyway, and there's a film screen. Oh, this, we've done that. Second of March, Stop the Welfare Attacks. Um, there is a um, rally, I think. Yeah, it's a rally. And um, we need to fight back and join the struggle for a dignified social security system uh, that is being uh, held at Trades Hall. And the speakers include Steve Jolly, who we mentioned before. Uh, Yaros, he's a Yaros State Councillor and um, now Victorian Socialist. And we have Lisa Newman from the CPSU, National um, uh, CPSU, which is the union. So Bolton, Morland uh, State Councillor, and uh, Father Bob Maguire. And that's at 4 p.m. at Trades Hall, corner of Ligon, Victoria. March 4th, film screening... Oh. The film, the, the, the film A Mighty Force is being f- um, filmed at diff- on different days. Uh, one's on the 27th of um, February and the other one is the 4th of March. Okay, so what we will do now is just do another one or two uh, um, announcements and we shall um, go to the interview because Umesh, who's painting, is here. <laughs> Morning, Umesh. Morning. Ah, dear, it's a bit of a... Did you, did you run, did you? I did, I did, as fast as I could. Thank you so much for coming. It, it's nice to have people face-to-face to, to chat to about issues. Okay, um, we, we want to talk about the refugee who's being um, deported. you want to tell us something about that? Sure. Uh, so I've been working with uh, Tamil Refugee Council yep. on this particular uh, case. Um um, we. Oh, sorry. You, um, the mic wasn't turned on, so you have to start. I again. see. Sorry. <laughs> That's Umesh Perinmanayam from the Tamil Council for Refugees. So I've been uh, working with the Tamil uh, Refugee Council. Yep. Um, on this particular case, and we visited uh, the Broadmeadows Detention Centre early last year mm-hmm. uh, for a routine visit, um, and we were actually visiting some other refugees who had been. Uh, indefinitely detained there yep. for about eight years now. Yes. And um, we happened to meet this other Tamil refugee mm. who had just been moved there from Sydney. Yep. And so he asked us for our help and didn't have any resources, so we tried to do what we could. We could. Um, and he had effectively exhausted all his domestic possibilities, so we put an application into the UN Committee Against Torture saying if he's returned, um, this guy, Santa Rubin, um, is going to 
have a high um, chance of being tortured if returned to or killed. So, yeah, because he's and, one of the high. He was during the times of the LTTR high-ranking officer. Uh, yeah, he was. A, well, he was. He was a long-serving member. Okay. Um, and I think played a played a role, a significant role, um, having been a member for that long. Mm. So there is a, we we announced the rally that's happening. Uh, uh, yes. Do you want to repeat that so that people know? So that's uh, this Sunday at 2 p.m. outside the Broadmeadows Detention Centre. Um, the address. We've of, given the address. Okay. That's fine. Yes. Um, well, I, can give, I give the address again, actually. Please do. Please do. Um, the address is going to be, it's at Camp Road in Broadmeadows. Um, if you just search Broadmeadows Detention Centre in it, Google yeah. Maps, you'll get it. Yeah. Um, it's also, if you look at Google Maps, I think it also shows it appearing as a military base because that detention camp used to, used be, to be a military yeah. base, um, so which kind of says everything. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's really important because this is a guy whose life's at stake at the moment, and we've heard lots and lots of stories about uh, Sri Lankan Tamil refugees um, who've been returned, who have disappeared in the white van, or they have been just taken away from the airport by military people, unknown personnel, and subjected to severe torture, and often they go missing, and we don't know what happens to them. No one's got information about them. The families still are looking for these people. And the government recently entertained some of the politicians who came uh, over from um, Sri Lanka and Malcolm Turnbull uh, met up with them. And it's um, it's very, very difficult to, to swallow the fact that, you know, we are supporting a regime. Uh, supposedly, this is... Um, uh, has moderated its attitude towards the minorities in Sri Lanka. Uh, Sri, what's his name? Sri Sirisena. Sirisena. And currently there's a, a change of scene, a political mm. scene in Sri Lanka as well, because the election results have been um, announced. And you want to talk about that, Ramesh? Yeah, so uh, just this weekend, uh, local authority elections, so the first election since August 2015 parliamentary elections. And the big change was Mahinda Rajapaksa, who was the previous president. And who was a murderer as well. Yes. Um, swept the polls. Yes. Um, like 44%, isn't it? Uh, yeah, 44% That's of right. the vote. But uh, that translates into more than two-thirds of control of all the local authorities on the island. And that is a really dangerous precedent. It just shows the support um, mm. he's gathered and uh, Sri Sena has uh, I think his his party won about 30-31% of the votes and all the other minor parties have just been doomed really in I, so actually it was it was um, Rana Wickremesinghe the UNP that won about 30% yep Sri uh, Sena's I think he only won about 3% uh. so that that is Rajapaksa's former party yes that's right so now there's some sort of contest for the control of the mm. the former uh, SLFP and those members in parliament yep. uh, under pressure maybe to switch over to Rajapaksa's side. <laughs> what are they thinking? Well, I think the thing was, you know, nothing really changed when Siri Sena got elected. I mean, he was right. he was the so he was a breakaway from. Yeah. The original um, SLFP. Yeah. And interestingly, now people are competing against Mahinda Rajapaksa to assert their role in the war. So Mahinda Rajapaksa is seen as 
hero. The, the war heroes. So now the other politicians are all trying to say that we were war heroes as well. So what 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 do you think has led to this? Because you know. Uh, <clears throat> This, this whole scenario where Rajapaksa was in, in, in power and he was seen as like the butcher of uh, the Tamils in Sri Lanka. Mm. And then uh, Sri Sena came in presenting this moderate face to, to the political uh, scene, I suppose. And now there's a switch back and, and a, a hype in, in a sense about supporting... Um, I th- yeah, I think that uh, certain requi- uh, c- requires a certain amount of effort to imagine that it was all Rajapaksa and yes. these other people were somehow... Well, okay, they were, they were moderates. Yeah, uh, I mean, so Siri Sena points out he was the acting defence minister in the final weeks of the he war. Was. When the most 2009, people, like, yes. And then Rana Wickremesinghe was prime minister during a very important part in the peace process. That's right. Um the JVP uh, is is claiming that they were the ones that forced the Mahinda um, Rajapaksa to go, go to war because during the peace process they were one of the most vehemently opposed. I know the JP has evolved in a, in mm. a terrible direction, but so that 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 paints a picture of the political situation. Uh, to which refugees are being sent back to. Coming back yes, to the, the issue at, at hand, is this. It's one life, but it's a life that we can possibly change his situation mm. if people mobilized to defend this this poor man. Yeah. Um, and we need to turn up for this uh, rally yes. at uh, the Broadmeadows uh, Det- Refugee Detention Centre. And it's heartbreaking to watch people having stayed there for years with some sort of positive frame of mind, hoping that they can stay away from being killed. And now being sent, basically sent back to slaughterhouse, and um, we owe it to refugees as a whole to try and mobilise to stop this uh, deportation. Uh, yes, th- thank you for uh, <laughs> for uh, for uh, pr- pr- promoting the um, this event on Sunday, and I think it is important that we all uh, rally around behind it. Um, and he, Santa Ruben, is just one example of you know a number of refugees mm. who are now facing deportation, especially under this new fast track process. Oh God! Um, yes. Which it's difficult to get statistics on how many people are actually getting uh, granted protection, but there are a lot of um, Tamils, for example, I saw in the appeals level they yeah. published some statistics: a thousand four hundred Tamils in the last year got their uh, appeals. Um, uh, not recognised, so they're facing deportation okay. potentially. So we, we're looking at about 1,000 Tamils who could be killed if returned to Sri Lanka? Um, pot- uh, potentially. Poten- potentially tortured, um, persecuted. Um, I mean, it's still it's still a crime in Sri Lanka to leave the country. Uh, illegally. But, yeah, Supposedly the, yeah, illegally. illegally. Yes. Supposedly illegally, yeah. What else do you do when you're being hunted yes, exactly, down? Exactly, exactly. Well, you're going to look for your passport and go to the airport and catch a plane. It's it, it it beats me how people think along those lines. You have to come legally. You've got to join the queue. And that's another common catch cry is that, oh, well, you, you, hmm. you jump the queue. Well, if your life is in danger, what else would you do? Yeah. So, <laughs> I don't know, that seems to be a, a global policy in Western countries is they don't like the right to asylum 
yes. the Western states want to pick and choose which refugees they want yeah. from third countries. White educated people is what they want. Or a cheap um, a third or develop uh, experts mm. from uh, highly qualified mm. people from the so-called developing nations, yeah. which I think is insulting to most of our countries. Um, and they want these guys, be- these people, because it's um, cheaper to employ highly qualified people from mm. these nations and they haven't had to pay for the education. Mm. Um, so it's a brain drain of the mm. the, third, the old third world mm. developing nations mm. um, and a boosting of um, cheap labor here. Mm. Often they don't give them mm. equivalent wages here anyway. But it's all in, the, in, in that mix, isn't it, where you have got this utterly racist policy and it stems from that focus and Dutton, the, the person who has led this charge, continues um, continues to do that, which is appalling and, and a total breach of human rights. And I know that in the, the US and some European countries are looking to Australia's example, yes, how they yeah. treat refugees. Yeah. I'm... Um I'm actually from uh, New Zealand. Yes, we know from the accent. And and he's actually <laughs> Tamil. He's got dark skin. He looks like me, and he's a Tamil like me, but he's from New Zealand and yeah. speaks like a Kiwi. And he sounds New Zealand. <laughs> it is. <laughs> and, uh, actually, New Zealanders are the largest single group in immigration detention at the moment. Yes. Um, but um, And they, they, they are multinational. Like some of them islanders, some of them mm-hmm. white, white uh, New Zealanders. Yeah, keep going. But uh, I've been looking into New Zealand's uh, asylum pol- refugee policies, and there are some similarities with Australia in that, you know, since 2001, particularly asylum claims by plane have dropped dramatically um, because they, they've, they've instituted this visa pre-screening process. So in order to get on a plane, you need a visa, and they'll, they'll not give visas to people who are likely to um, claim asylum. But how do they do that? I th- well, I think if you want to catch a plane to New Zealand before you get on the plane at the other end, the uh, the airline will ask ask you, "Do you have a visa?" Wow! And if you don't have a but visa, how do then you, you know, can't get even, on the plane. Even if you had a tourist visa, for for example, you you you'd be vetted. Yeah. Well, so you have to apply for a tourist visa. I mean, if you're from Australia, you don't need to apply for a tourist re- visa. But if you're from most New other Zealand. most other countries in the world, Malaysia, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sri Lanka. You have to apply for a tourist visa, and in that process, they will uh, red flag you if they think you're likely to. <laughs> so the number of uh, people claiming asylum by plane in New Zealand has dropped by more than a thousand um, since 2001. Um, hmm. And then the other thing is, you, you can't get to uh, get to New Zealand by boat because it appears, and and it hasn't it hasn't been uh, conclusively proven, but in one case at least. A boat coming to New Zealand was stopped by the Australian um, border force. Of course, they're very but, vigilant, aren't they? <laughs> but it never it never went into Australian waters. It was it was on its way to New Zealand and sailing in international waters. Yes. Um, so there there is some level of cooperation between Australia and New Zealand to stop maritime arrivals. Hmm. So which basically means New Zealand is in a very similar situation to Australia in that it's stopping. You the know, boats, uh, yeah, so stopping the speak. boats yeah. potentially and stopping uh, asylum seekers by plane. So the majority of of refugees can only get into the country if they're chosen by the Australian state or the New Zealand state. Yes, and and that flies in the face of the argument or the historical fact: the whole world was built on the basis of migration. We were very transitional communities for mm. centuries and centuries, mm. and this is 
this is just appalling policy by the rich nations to exclude mm. the poor nations. And the rich nations had a very big role in impoverishing the so-called developing nations with their colonization uh, policy over the last uh, couple of hundred mm. years. And now they say, well, we've got your wealth. You can piss off, basically. Pardon my language there. But it's it's frustrating when you think, I mean, how, you know, it, 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 it jams my brain almost. So, you know, what is going on here? You know, how do you stop this this, this process? And um, I guess one way is to try to save one life at a time. And now we have this one at hand. And once again, let, let's announce that. Jacob, do you want to give the address? Yep. It's uh, the Broad Meadows Detention Center. And this is in, in support of, um, what's the, the person's name? Santa Ruben. Santa Ruben, uh, who is facing deportation and possibly death if he goes to Sri Lanka because of his previous history. And what's the address um, of the detention camp? Yep, the um, address is the detention centre on Camp Road in Broadmoor. It's not the most specific address, um, but the best way to get to it is um, driving. Well, driving is the best way to get to it, um, but there is ways to get to it via public transport, um, And but it involves taking a train to Broadmeadows and taking a bus that is quite frequent, Um and then you get off of the bus and I think you have to take like a five to ten minute walk or something. <laughs> okay, I'm going to play a um, community announcement. And before I do that, let me just say you're listening to 3CR. This is Green Left Weekly Radio, Friday breakfast, of course. And we've just heard um, Umesh Perimbanayagan talking about the situation in Sri Lanka as well as an important issue of saving a Sri Lankan man's life um, who's facing deportation. Welcome back, um, listeners. This is Tracy R. and, of course, uh, Green Lafayette Radio. Uh, Umesh is staying to um, participate in the um, next interview. Thank you. And we have Alex Batel on line one here. Good morning, Alex. Hello. How are you? Good, good. How are you? Thank you for making yourself available for this interview. And Alex, um, Alex Batel, of course, is the... Um, nominated Greens candidate for the upcoming Batman election, which is in a, what? Well, Batman by-election, by which election, I think is right. in the, April. Well, this 17th of March. March, so, not oh, April. Coming soon. <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay. So, Alex, let's um, start the interview by saying, why are you standing? Simple question. <laughs> yeah, sure. Thanks, Lolita. Um, I'm standing because I feel that people in this electorate, which is Australia's most progressive, have been let down by Labor. Uh, this is uh, a... It was once the safest seat in the country. Uh, it was obviously a Labor seat, and as I said, it's the most progressive seat as measured by uh, Vote Compass, the ABC Vote Compass website. Uh, and also you can see that through the combined Greens and Labor vote, which has been going up over decades. Mm. Uh, finally, in 2016, the Greens' primary vote overtook the Labor vote, um, and we found ourselves in a situation where we've still got uh, Labor MPs who I believe aren't representing the interests or the values of the electors of this seat when they get into Parliament. Mm, good one. And that includes on climate change, uh, very prominently on refugees uh, and on a whole host of other sort of social issues, including public health and public, um, public education, uh, hospital funding, uh, transport initiatives, the, the approach to the environment, a whole, a whole range of things. 
Okay, um, so the number of uh, policies that you released and uh, Jacob, who's in the studio here, would like to ask you a question. Yeah, so I have a quite a specific question and um, I think what I want to um, hear you talk a bit more about is what the Greens are running with um, in this by-election on your energy policy, especially with your kind of cause to basically pushing towards putting the the energy sector into kind of public hands or against kind of privatisation of electricity, which I think is a very key issue. Yes, I, I totally agree with you, Jacob. Uh, yes, so Adam Bant uh, announced this policy a couple of weeks ago. Uh, the Greens are committed to getting the power grid back into public hands, uh, where we believe it should always have stayed. Uh, at the moment, we know that electricity uh, bills or power bills uh, about 50% of those bills uh, reflect costs uh, that go to the profits of the private uh, owners of the grid. Uh, so the one way the Greens can do this is that we're proposing to buy the interconnectors between the states. Uh, so this is the grid infrastructure that connects state suppliers up to different states. At the moment, we've got six of those interconnectors around the country and just one of them is owned by an Australian company. The rest of them are all owned by overseas multinationals. Um, we, you know, we know that uh, they're profit uh, gouging. We know that uh, on high demand days, um, you know, the big three um, uh, private companies that run our power grid price gouge by sitting there and waiting for the spot price to rise for their electricity sale. And then uh, they sometimes leave it too late and that's why we end up with blackouts. Uh, mm. It's got nothing to do with wind or anything yes. like that. <laughs> it's actually about the behaviour and the actions of uh, multinational companies. Um, so we're committed to trying to buy back the interconnectors and, of course, we're committed to state governments and the federal government buying into and investing into as much renewable energy as possible, which also has the effect of taking that out of private hands. So that there are some of the approaches that we've got. Hmm, sounds good. And, and it's, it's interesting, that approach is also applicable to an area um, which is my passion, health. Um, yes. and, and maybe you want to talk a little bit more about um, health, as uh, your policy on health, and why you wouldn't uh, um, actually apply a similar principles to health. Yeah, sure, we do indeed. So uh, we've always believed uh, that we need to fund, uh, predominantly fund uh, public health, uh, particularly public hospitals. Uh, the Greens are the only parliamentary party that is committed to ending the private health insurance uh, subsidies. subsidies yes. So that's a big thing for us. Uh, we know that those subsidies haven't made health cheaper for anyone. Uh, instead, they've lined the pockets again of uh, large companies, corporations, uh, who are acting in the interests of their shareholders rather than in the interests of uh, the overall population. Mm. Uh, so one major feature of the Greens policy, apart from the private health insurance subsidy, which sets us apart from Labor, uh, is that we have a really strong focus on prevention. Uh, so for me as a social worker, I know that if people are struggling to survive, they can't, they can't feed themselves from week to week, uh, then it's impossible for them to live healthily. So the, from a Greens perspective, we want to make sure that we've got uh, well-paid jobs and increased minimum wage. Uh, and protections for uh, unionists and uh, worker action to uh, 
you know, to look after their wages and protect their conditions. And we also want to make sure that people on income support benefits can actually live on them. So just yesterday we uh, moved a parliamentary motion to increase New Start, and unfortunately that was uh, voted against by Labor and Liberal again. Surprise, surprise. Mm. Yeah, <laughs> and so we see it quite um, uh, broadly, the question of health. Uh, we also want 24-hour mental health services uh, in all the regional centres and the capital city uh, so that people aren't relying on understaffed CAT teams. Uh, obviously, the crisis assessment teams are fantastic, but they're uh, not properly uh, staffed uh, and funded. Uh, and also, sometimes people need to, to be admitted into a specialist mental health clinic, and that is very difficult to achieve um, right. after hours especially. Mm, yes, it's, it's just a appalling situation. Yeah. Now, we have Umesh Perimanayam um, from the Tamil Refugee Council here, and I know... Uh, the oh, okay. refugee issue is a national or federal issue, but uh, given that the detention camp is not far from Batman, just wondered if you would like to take a question from him. Absolutely, I'd love to. Hi, Nish. Umesh. Hi, Alex. <laughs> uh, thanks. Um, so we're uh, rallying uh, this Sunday at 2pm outside Broadmeadows Detention, trying to stop the deportation of a Tamil asylum seeker. Mm. I, I know the Greens... Uh, you know, have have spoken out about the refugee issue, um, but obviously it's difficult with Labor and uh, Liberals' positions. Um, I mean, what what is, what is the strategy, or how how is the Green Party, um, you being in Parliament, going to change the situation where it currently seems that it's it's a system designed especially to punish uh, and deny claims uh, for those people who arrived here by boat? Indeed, absolutely. Uh, the reason I'm running, uh, the reason I ran for the first time in 2001 and the reason I joined the Greens uh, is because of uh, the detention of asylum seekers. It's obviously not the entire reason I'm running. Uh, I've just spoken about my other policies. But for me, it's, my, it's the motivating factor that, uh, that, is, that um, impels me to continue to run for Parliament. Um, I, I hope to attend uh, the vigil on Sunday. Um, I know that gentleman. I've visited um, the Broadmeadows um, Detention Centre over many years. Uh, these places are hell holes and the Greens are committed to closing them down. So that's, uh, that is a fundamental difference between us and, unfortunately, apart from some progressive independents, almost every single other parliamentarian in Canberra. Mm. Uh, so you know that when I go when I go to Canberra, if I go to Canberra, um, I'll be uh, asking questions uh, without notice <laughs> about the conditions that I'm seeing around the country and also on Nauru and Manus. At the moment, when I hear first-hand accounts, uh, when I visit people, or um, as is more often the case now, uh, I hear from other refugee advocates about situations. Then I, you know, contact Nick McKim, uh, the refugee spokesperson for the Greens. Um, formerly it was Sarah Hanson-Young who I was phoning. I try and get on the phone to, just like the rest of us, to uh, the Labor and Liberal MPs. Um, and so the, the difference you'll see is that you'll have someone going straight into the House of Representatives and asking questions from the floor. Mm. Uh, they'll go into Hansard and Peter Dutton and Malcolm Turnbull... And Bill Shorten uh, uh, and the Labor MPs will not be able to say they didn't know. 
Good one. Um, one last question is yeah. about the increasing homelessness in uh, Victoria, uh, which has become not just an eyesore, but it's it, it's a statement that in such a rich country, we ignore the vulnerable. Uh, in fact, we punish them in many cases. Um, so comment on that, Alex. Sure, Lalita. I mean, again, I see it as uh, it's, it's connected with um, our, our really problematic income support system. Our welfare system is punitive, as you said. It's been punitive since uh, Labor introduced activity testing in the late 1980s. Uh, we're not looking at trying to move people into jobs in all reality. Uh, we've outsourced our uh, jobs networks uh, so that they don't they operate to to be profit making uh, in, in many cases um, rather than getting people into jobs. Uh, and so people are forced into the streets. We've got people who are in uh, employment because, as I said before, our minimum wage has fallen and we we have a major problem with inequality in Australia. Yeah, so the Greens' approach to this is, in the first instance, to increase income support payments, uh, but we need to tackle the housing affordability crisis as well. So we can do this two ways. We can close the loopholes for wealthy Australians by phasing out negative gearing uh, and also phasing out the capital gains tax discount. Over a 10-year period, that will bring $100 billion, uh, we estimated, in 2016, back into the public coffers. We'll be able to build public housing stock up. At the moment, it's fallen to a residual system. Uh, it, you know, in the 50s and 60s, it was sitting around 20%. That's the sort of, um, you know, housing stock percentage that other OECD nations enjoy. Uh, I think that's what Australia needs to be looking towards. Uh, we also need to build affordable housing. So it's a, it's a supply and it's also a demand question. And at the moment, we're not getting either of those things right. Thank you very much, Alex. Very kind of you to offer to be able to talk to us this morning. And all the very best. And Thank um, you, we may come back to you closer to the election see if there's anything that evolves in the meantime. Fantastic. It's been a pleasure. Thank, Thank you. you. Bye. See you. Bye. Okay, that was Alex Batal from the Greens who's standing in Batman in the uh, upcoming elections on the 17th of March. And, um, of course, if you want to follow that, you can hit the internet website and so on. So, yeah, I was going to. You can do that. Yeah. Well, we thank, um, we like to thank all our listeners for tuning in to the program. And a final push. If you enjoyed the program today and enjoy any of the interviews, think about um, subscribing to 3CR. Really important uh, because that keeps us on, uh, in the, on the air. And your support means uh, a lot to us. And more more public support is means that we can stay on air for longer. And I hope all of you have a good day. And stick around for BZD, who was hanging around the door. I shall put on uh, the outro so that we can leave the studio for them. Thanks, listeners. Have a good day. 